Thank you to Lance for encouraging us to find satisfaction in Christ. He actually does satisfy the enoughness of Jesus. And for Tim, uh, that agenda is love talk. I've heard him massage that into my soul before. Um, but we're walking through a couple of really hard things at our church right now uh, with a lot of those emails that don't tell you why people want to meet. And uh, just remembering our agenda is love, but holding up the beauty of Christ in every sermon uh, is something that I never tire of hearing Tim encourage me to do. And I was, I knew he was going to get to uh, all you pathetic excuse for preachers who've blown it all this uh, time. You can actually be forgiven of that. I knew he was going to get there, uh, but uh, even though I knew he was going to get there, um, really ministered deeply to my soul, brother. So thank you. What I want to do for a few minutes is just basically say to you uh, what you already know, stir you up by way of reminder, and what you've been hearing. Uh, this isn't one of your full-on sessions. I've got just a few minutes. But I want to say to you, uh, in essence, try to unpack this, you know this, you cannot export what you do not possess. Uh, part of the reason Tim was saying that we don't bring the gospel as the balm to every one of our sermons is, is he was articulating, well, we fundamentally don't believe that we need the gospel. And so it's like the empty semi-truck trailer that travels across the country and gets to its port and it backs up to the dock and the workers are ready to unload the merchandise, but when they fling the doors open, there's nothing on the inside because the warehouse that it left on the other side of the country to start with was out of the items that the second place ordered. Similarly, we will not be able to transfer to the lives of the precious eternal souls entrusted to our care what we ourselves don't possess. And if we long for our people to treasure Christ, and we are the ones that the Lord has given the awesome responsibility and privilege to tend to their eternal welfare, then it stands to reason that we must begin by treasuring Him ourselves. I've asked a few brothers to help me set the stage, and I'm going to give you just a couple of meditations following that from Hebrews chapter 1. I invited a brother from uh, the early 1600s, born in 1604, Isaac Ambrose, in his book, Looking Unto Jesus, said, in the knowledge of Christ, there is an excellency above all other knowledge in the world. There is nothing more pleasing and comfortable Nothing more animating and enlivening. Nothing more ravishing and soul-contenting. Only Christ is the sun and center of all divine revealed truths. We can preach nothing else as the object of our faith, as the necessary element of your soul's salvation, which doth not in some way or other either meet in Christ or refer to Christ. Only Christ is the whole of man's happiness the sun to enlighten him, the physician to heal him, the wall of fire to defend him, the friend to comfort him, the pearl to enrich him, the art to support him, the rock to sustain him under the heaviest of pressures. Only Christ 
is that ladder between earth and heaven, the mediator between God and man, a mystery which the angels of heaven desire to pry and peep and look into. Christ is more excellent than all the world, so the sight of Him transcends all other sights. He is the epitome of a Christian's happiness, and he goes on. So, in the 1800s, A.W. Pink, known about a big God theology, Mr. Sovereignty of God, Mr. Attributes of God, wrote, the person of the Savior is to be the mark on which the eyes of those who are pressing forward for the prize of the high calling of God are to be fixed. By constantly looking to Him, trustfully, submissively, hopefully, expectantly, He is the fountain of all grace, John 1.16, which Tim referenced. Our every need is supplied by God according, Philippians 4.19, to His riches and glory in Christ. You heard Lance read, from Spurgeon's words about not having a borrowed sanctification, not being able to see Christ through another man's eyes or love him with another man's heart. He has to have a firsthand knowledge of Christ. In his very first words, Spurgeon's, as pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, when he was a ripe 20 years old, Spurgeon said, I would propose that the subject of ministry in this house as long as this platform shall stand, as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of a Baptist. But if I am asked what is my creed, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. My venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, has left a body of divinity, admirable and excellent in its way, but the body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is not his system, nor any other human treatise, but Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology. The incarnation of every precious truth. The all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. Isaac Ambrose, who I mentioned at the very beginning, said, you cannot tire, wear out, exasperate. You cannot fatigue. You cannot tire a holy soul from looking unto Jesus. And what I want to do for just a few minutes is... Look at him. See him. I mentioned I'd be reading from Hebrews chapter 1. This is my beloved Hebrews. Uh, The Lord has done a lot of soul surgery on me through this epistle. No book of the Bible has done more soul surgery in terms of exposing the brilliance and beauty and gospel of Christ and drawing me to look upon him than this one. It is one of my dearest friends. It has been a mirror to show me my sin and a light to show me my Savior. So, Hebrews chapter 1 begins with the summary paragraph of the whole epistle. Before I read it, I want to remind you that it is one sermon. Hebrews 13 says so. Bear with this word, singular, of exhortation, sermon. But it actually says this brief word of exhortation. If I read it out loud, which I did every morning and every afternoon for eight straight weeks, which I commend something like that to you, because after three weeks or so, I accidentally memorized it. 
And then doing it for another five weeks just got it deeper. And so if you want to accidentally memorize the Bible, just read it out loud in your own voice a couple of times a day until it's in there. It's one word of exhortation. It's one sermon. It takes me an hour and five minutes to read it at a conversational pace. So I say to you, I think that's typical of what a New Testament sermon might have been like. A Jesus-drenched, Old Testament-saturated, exalted view of the glory and gospel of Christ. That's Hebrews. With that in mind, verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory. And the exact representation or representation of His nature. And upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. I'm going to ask for God's blessing and then try to show you a few things from that paragraph. Father, I pray that you would pull the veil back and show us your glory in the face of your Son. We ask in His name. Amen. So the book of Hebrews, if you want a good Sunday school answer that's true, is about Jesus. Okay, The book of Hebrews is about Jesus. It's written to one beleaguered little congregation, one little church, probably in Rome. That's what a bunch of scholars would agree on. And they are Hebrews. They have turned to the Lord Jesus for salvation from Judaism, from a synagogue faith. They are Hebrews. They are completed Jews. They are also experiencing immense persecution with great joy. Some of their kinsmen though not to the point of yet shedding their blood, they have not become martyrs for the faith yet, Hebrews 12, 3. But Hebrews 10, many of them have been imprisoned for their faith. Those who were not imprisoned identified themselves with the prisoners, thus outing themselves as Christians. And while they went to visit their friends in jail for being imprisoned for their faith and being found out as Christians, an entourage of people went to their house and burned everything down. And when they got home from visiting their friends in jail, they received with great joy the plundering of their property because they knew that they had for themselves a better possession and a lasting one. They had their eyes fixed on Christ. So when Hebrews 12 uses this weird word that's not used anywhere else in the whole Bible, aphorontes, alpha privative, aphorontes, fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's a both-and word. It's looking off the negative and looking on the positive. That's how you live the Christian life. That's how you run the Christian race. So the whole book of Hebrews is to a suffering little church about the beauty and sufficiency and all superiority of Christ. He's better than everything you could possibly imagine. The book of Hebrews lists eight things that he's better than. I want to show you that in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews I'm not going to show you all of these. I'm going to show you a few of these. Gives 34 separate, unique descriptions of Jesus. Chapter 1 is only 13 verses long. 
two of the 13 verses don't even have a description of Jesus. So in 11 verses in chapter 1, there's 34 separate descriptions of Christ. What the author's doing is putting the diamond of the beauty of Jesus in front of your face. And he's showing you a cut, a facet of the glory of Christ. And then he turns the diamond. And he wants you to look again. And then he turns the diamond. And he wants you to look again. Guess what your job and mine is as a pastor? To do that for our people. To show them Christ in all of his fullness. You cannot tire a holy soul from looking unto Jesus. That's what Ambrose meant. That's what Hebrews does. So rapid fire fashion, in the first four verses, you get these ten descriptions. In verse one, he's the definitive revelation of God. He's God's final word. Tim just mentioned something about that. In ver uh, sorry, that's verse two. In verse two, he's also the inheritor, the heir of all things. In verse 2, he's also the creator of all things. You could actually say it more precisely. He's the agent through whom the Father created all things. You can see again in verse 3, he radiates the glory of God. That's an outward display. The old King James effulgence. He, he spews forth the glory of God on the outside, but that has a root. The fruit is effulgence. The root is nature, which is also in verse 3. He is the exact representation of the nature of God. He possesses God's nature, therefore he shines God's glory. Root, fruit. In uh, verse 3, he upholds the cosmos by the rhema, the spoken word of his power. It's not logos, it's rhema. He's actually telling it to stay put, and it does. He's the purifier of our sins in verse 3. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God? Yes. Is that what he says? No. Of the majesty in the heavens. Kingly, regal splendor. Jesus is in parallel dignity with the majestic one in the heavens. That says something about him as well. And in verse 4, he's more excellent than all the angels. He has a better name than them. That's 10 in the first four verses. There are 24 more in the remaining verses. The first 10 come from the vantage point of the human author. Whoever wrote Hebrews, no, you don't know. No, you do not know who wrote Hebrews. No. The, the age-old question of who wrote it, you don't know. Okay, you can have your little your, your, uh, intramural debates. But the 10 descriptions of Christ in the first four verses are from the vantage point of the human author. The 24 descriptions of Jesus in the remaining verses, citing the Old Testament, are from the vantage point of God the Father, describing His Son. So they're, they're all worth looking at. I want to give you a final comment with that, a final few comments with that in mind. When the author of Hebrews opens this way, he's God's final definitive voice in these last days he's spoken to us through his son when, when the author of hebrews then starts to say he's the rightful inheritor of everything the whole universe first corinthians 15 is going to be handed by the father to the son all the authority already belongs to him 
as the risen king. And then he says, that's only logical because he's the one through whom all of it was made to begin with. And oh, by the way, he currently sustains it all by the word of his power. The reason you don't incinerate or obliterate at this moment is because Jesus of Nazareth is holding you together. Then he goes on to say, I'm going to skip some, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is actually the big point of the whole book of Hebrews, that he's the high priest, none of whom in the Old Testament ever sat down. It signifies the finishedness of his work, that he's done. Uh, uh, John Murray, redemption is both accomplished and applied that we work from our redemption. That's all Tim's been saying to us. We don't work for our redemption. We get to be set free in the finished work of Jesus for us. There's nothing you can do. Do you want your jaw to drop at the stunning majesty of the love of God for you in Christ? Turn this rock over in your head until it gets smooth, until it goes into your heart. There's nothing you can do to make God like you more. Nothing. All your sermons and pastoring and preaching and family and nothing you can do to make him like him more. Now do you want to be staggered with the profundity of the gospel? There's nothing you can do to make him like you less. You're not going to be more justified 10 trillion years from, from now than you are right now. Because Jesus sat down the right hand of the majesty on high and he's got the best name of all. In fact, all the angels one of whom killed 186,000 people in one night, all of them turn the locus of the focus of their worship from heaven to earth when Jesus came down. Keep reading Hebrews 1. When he, the Father, brought the firstborn into the world, he, the Father, said to all the angels, turn around and worship him. They're all focused on Christ. Now, here's what I want you to hear, and I promise I'll quit. Two letters. H-E. Look at it in verse 3. When He made purification of sins, He sat down. It's the catheter word that's where we get catheter from it's the idea of cleansing from the inside out when he made purification of sins he didn't do it from a distant throne in heaven he came all the way down here he walked the sin-torn world he lived the life before the face of God that you and I were supposed to but then he died the death suffering the wrath of God that we were supposed to die and the author of Hebrews right out of the gate wants you to know that this prince, this king of glory, this majestic one, this creator and sustainer of everything, the object of all angelic praise, this one, the second person of the Trinity, cleansed your sin from the inside out. He became a curse for us. He hung on the tree taking all the curses that we deserved. And then, 
Romans says it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise. He doesn't want to condemn you. But even if he did, he couldn't do it. Because there's none left. Jesus took all the condemnation there is. There's no more left. But two verses later it says in Romans 8, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, same word, he, the father, condemned sin in the flesh. The father damned the son. He condemned our sin in the flesh of his son. So when you read through Hebrews chapter 1, you're thinking, look at him as the great revelation of God and Look at him as the inheritor, the heir of all things, and look at him as the effulgence of God's glory and the one who possesses God's nature and who's better than all the angels. Your jaw is supposed to drop when you get to the phrase, he is the one that made purification for our sins. And if he's not enough for you, nothing else ever will be. That's the point of Hebrews. So we lay aside every weight and every sin and anything that slows you down and you put your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What joy? What joy? He had eternal joy. There's a particular joy in front of him. He's bringing you there too. Hebrews chapter 2, he's bringing many sons to glory. That's the joy in front of him. And we get the privilege, we get the privilege, we get the privilege of helping our people not be surprised when they get there. Because they saw him time and time and time and time again through our preaching and our teaching and our counseling and our walking by their side. They just saw him over and over. And when they get there, they say, yeah. That's my Jesus. Amen? Lord, thank you for these brothers. Help us to hold up high the diamond of the glory, the beauty of Christ, whose name we pray.